This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. COVID-19 diagnostic tests are without a doubt going to help us get to the end of this pandemic. They are also a topic that sparked your curiosity. Of the many questions you asked, there was one that led the pack and revealed two things. You all want access and the situation is far from perfect. So I'm here again with Sherry Lynn Ramirez. She is an assistant professor in the chemistry and physics department at Simmons University. She was also the deputy director of the Global Learning Studio at the Global Health Education and Learning Incubator at Harvard University. She has been pushing for equity in diagnostic testing for global health and knows how important these tests can be to deal with COVID-19. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS class on COVID-19 diagnostic tests. Last week, Sherry Lynn Ramirez piqued our interest in a topic that normally isn't given much attention in our daily lives. Diagnostic tests. But as we've seen with so many other aspects of health, COVID-19 has forced us to become aware, and as your questions have shown, curious. Mind you, when it comes to the most popular question, it's less about the nuts and bolts of the testing itself, and more about the logistics of managing the pandemic. Now, before I get to that, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would suggest you go back and do so now. Diagnostic tests are going to be part of our future for some time, and it's best to understand now how important they are, not just to our individual health, but also to our local and global community. Class is now in session. Here's your first and most popular question. Why can't I get a test? That is a great question. I think the answer depends on where you live. So there are some places where getting a test is is very easy. You just call up your doctor and the government pays for it. Maybe you go to a vending machine and you can have um, a sample collection kit for for PCR that you can mail in uh, like they do in Hong Kong. Uh, Maybe you go to a community testing site. There are a a lot of ways that you can get tested you know, and have access to testing depending on where you live. If you don't live in one of those places, then you might find it really hard. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So in the United States, one of the big challenges has been that there's been this focus from the Food and Drug Administration to approve over-engineered tests, frankly, rather than the very simple tests that resemble pregnancy tests. And it's been a point of frustration for a lot of people, frankly, and um, it needs to be changed. And there, there are a lot of efforts to pressure the FDA into rethinking their policies. We've known for many years that having a dipstick type test can create um, the opportunity for people to ma- better manage their health. And you don't need Bluetooth. You don't need a, a lot of these add-ons and bells and whistles that make the tests a lot more expensive and difficult to produce. One of the very interesting things about having a test that you do at home is that it should be simple. And as you were just mentioning, sometimes when these tests are being developed, you want to try and outcompete somebody else. You want to be more fancy than somebody else. And as a result, 
you may end up making a test that is way too overcomplicated for people to actually use at home. And I'm wondering, should we be focusing at the regulatory level tests that are used by health authorities and tests that are used by people at home so that we don't end up with someone literally looking at an IKEA manual in order to do a P-test? Right. So I think the... the um use of technology in test development is kind of a double-edged sword. So I think the intentions behind what the FDA doing, you know, I think they're coming from a good place. I think they're actually trying to make the tests easier to use. For instance, um, some of the home tests that have been approved in the United States cost around $30. And the reason why is because you not only have the test, but you also have access to a health provider who can walk you through how to use the test and things like that. So I think that's that's nice. It's, it's just a shame that it makes the test so much more expensive. And the other thing is maybe you need that the first time or the first couple of times you do it. But once you know how it works, you probably don't need that every time. That's a, that's an issue as well, where, you know, there's this tendency to sort of ooh, not trust people. Like, what if they don't do the test right or something? But the reality is, if you give people the right information, they will usually be able to do it pretty well. And if they, they can't for some reason, there are other options like community-based testing, like testing in workplaces. There can be other ways to give people access to testing if, if they can't or don't want to test themselves at home. Uh, but I think the big problem has been that because of some of these fixations on over-engineering the tests, that it's basically meant that people don't have anything reliable to figure out whether they're sick or not. Why do some tests sample the throat, others the nose, and still others sample the nasopharyngeal region with that big, long one that makes you feel like you've just eaten wasabi? Oh, man, that's horrible. I've had that done a couple of times. I, I, don't, I do not wish that on anyone. And honestly, I think that policymakers who make decisions about this should have that kind of stuff done. The reason why all those collection methods exist is because, for instance, early on in the infection may be easier to detect uh, with your nose swabs. A little later in the infection, maybe it's it's more common in, in other parts of your body, like your throat. And then, you know, later on, maybe it's more common in fecal samples. Th that the, the NP swabs or the nasopharyngeal swabs, we use those because we knew that they, they probably worked reasonably well based on previous experience. What the data has shown us though over time is that yes, that, that test can be good, especially for diagnosing early infection, but we have other alternatives that are much less invasive that also perform really well. And one example of that is the anterior nasal swab or AN swab. And that's basically a Q-tip that you put in like a half inch into your nose or a centimeter or something. It's not very much. <laughs> it's just basically, you know, you swirl it around a couple of times. It's, it's not a big deal. You know, people generally don't experience discomfort for it. And it's really important to ensure compliance. And, and the reason why that matters is there are people who right now are being subjected to compulsory NP swabs and for instance, if you happen to need to use a homeless shelter or something and you show up and they say, well, you're either getting an NP swab or you're sleeping on the street. Well, that's a really awful decision to make someone make. And I, I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone. So I think it's really important to offer people choices, especially choices that work reasonably well, like the AN swabs. There's one question here that talks about pooled sampling. I've seen it done before for other viruses. What is your take on doing this for COVID-19? Yeah, it's interesting you should ask that, because actually pool testing was something I was thinking about uh, in March of last year, and I was trying to you know, uh, talk to other folks about the potential of this to really scale up testing, especially when we had uh, a big scarcity of resources early on 
in the pandemic while we were still trying to scale up some of the responses. You can test multiple people in, in batches, like, you know, batches of five or 10, so that you can try to figure out if someone from that batch or a couple of people from that batch might happen to be sick. So it can be a useful strategy. I think there are a couple of drawbacks though. So one drawback is if you have a pool and uh, say you have five people in the pool that's being tested, well, maybe it takes a day to get the results back or two days, right? So if any of those people are sick, they might be making other people sick while you wait for the results. The other issue that might happen is once you realize, okay, well, someone from the pool is sick, then maybe all of those people have to quarantine while you wait for the follow-up test results. So from a logistical point of view, it's also a little bit more kind of labor intensive to handle the samples and then go back and test the individual samples in, in the pool. There, there are some places that kind of save a little bit of the samples so that if they figure out that a pool is positive, they can go back and retest it right away. But for other strategies, you kind of have to collect the swabs again, and then that can you know lead to some delays. So it's, it's a strategy that's been pushed, especially to help reopen schools. And it's definitely better than no testing at all. But especially the, with the fact that we do have rapid antigen tests now, and that we know that they work fairly well, and that they're easy to use, and that you get results in about 15 minutes, that it really is something to think about. Um, in terms of managing the pandemic, especially in a more cost-effective way. What is a CT? It's become a huge thing on social media, especially in some conspiracy theories. And people have heard numerous different types of definitions. So can you explain what a CT happens to be and why it's so important in understanding how a diagnostic test works and the positive and negative outcome that you get? Absolutely. CT stands for cycle threshold. So this is getting back to the idea of PCR tests as a photocopier machine, right? It basically just counts how many copies you've made. And the thing about PCR is that it makes copies of the copies. So every time you have copies, they're, they're making bigger and bigger numbers of the copies. And the cycle thresholds usually go at least to 30, maybe to 40. It just depends on what protocol is being set up. But basically that means how many times you've photocopied your photocopies. <laughs> That's, that's, that's all that, that really means. And, and why, the reason why it's important and why it's been a lot of research around what they mean, how much information we can gather from them, is that, for instance, if you have someone who has a lot of virus because they're really sick and they're very likely to make other people sick, uh, we call this viral load, then if you swab their nose and you do PCR, you're gonna notice, wow, I have lots and lots of copies really fast. So you might see a relatively low CT value. And so that can be really helpful to try to determine you know, how likely someone is to be infectious, for instance. If you have to do lots and lots and lots of copies to get a result, then it might mean that maybe the person's less likely to be sick, or maybe you had some contamination, or maybe you know there could be things that are going on that are leading to that result. So. So that's another thing that people are looking at, the difference in these values. And, and one thing that's made it really difficult is that depending on what kind of test is being run, depending on how the sample is collected, depending on whether you're diluting your sample with water or saline or something, that that, that could lead to differences in what the values actually mean. And so um, I think there's being there's a lot of work being done about kind of trying to figure out, well, well, should these values be reported and what do they mean and how consistent is that for different tests? Um, so I, I think that the evidence is showing that it is useful to include CT scores, but we just need to be careful about, you know, what um, they're actually being used for and some of the limitations that might be sort of built into their use. But I think it's, it's something that, that is potentially being shown to be useful. As we get further on with vaccination, I think the idea of the CT is going to become 
more contentious because I feel that there may be a limit, maybe 15 or 20 cycles, and therefore you need to isolate or something along those lines. Whereas if you have like a 30 or 40, you may not have the viral load that could potentially lead to transmission. So I think it's very good to understand that the cycle threshold is an important aspect of policymaking, but that for those people who are listening, it's not the greatest thing they need to be concerned about. It's just simply, is the virus inside of you or not? So yes. And I think, for instance, if if you're generally doing public health screenings by using rapid antigen tests, you might not even see cycle thresholds, right? Because it's it's a totally different technology. So I think when people do get molecular tests, for instance, for medical diagnosis or, you know, for certain screening approaches, that it can be can be a useful measure to include and because it can help give you some information about about the the clinical picture, if you will. The reason that I ask about cycle threshold is because it leads into another question that I received, which is much like HIV diagnostic tests can be legally binding, do you think that a COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 diagnostic test could be binding as well? And I think this comes into the context of, say, a long-term care facility experiencing an outbreak and you actually identify the person who brought it in. I worry a bit about policies like that. Because I think that it makes it easier for people to make the wrong choices. Um, So I'll give you an example. I'm in education. I'm a professor. And we think a lot about academic integrity or cheating. One of the ways that you can prevent cheating is by changing the environment so that students are less likely to cheat. So for instance, you might create an exam where you can't really Google the questions because they're unique questions that require a level of analysis that you can't just find by Googling the answer. So there are different things that you can do to try to prevent people from making decisions that you don't want them to make. And I think from it's a similar point of view to COVID testing where you, the last thing you want to do is create policies that force people to feel shame or stigma about their status. And so for instance, I'll give you an example. If you have some sort of policy where people with a positive test can't go to work or something, right? Then they might lose their jobs, right? They they might not be able to feed their families. And so you can maybe understand why if someone has a a test and it it comes out positive that they might wanna try to hide that, or they might not wanna be tested at all. I think that 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 creates a lot of problems potentially. And so what I really think is important is for people to think, well, okay, if I'm going to ask people to get tested, I really want to make sure that there's support in place so that if they are positive, they don't have to be afraid that they're going to lose their job. In Canada, we've had something similar with respect to rapid tests, but in schools, why would school boards simply choose not to actually do rapid testing in a school environment? Would it be simply as a result of the opposite effect whereby a positive or or some other kind of result could lead to a closure that really nobody wants? Exactly. And I think you, you hit it on the head because we've actually seen this in a lot of settings like schools, correctional facilities, unfortunately, um, where they may have tests that are given for free to the institution by the government or, or made available for the asking. But some facilities, you know, sort of, oops, like, oh, we, we didn't have to do testing, or they start to see cases creep up, and then they suddenly stop testing, and there's no accountability. Unfortunately, we've seen that pattern. And, and again, I come back to, you know, what are the policies in place that are leading to this behavior? Because you can you can understand why it would be incentivized for the institution, if they're going to be penalized for positive cases, to just sort of, you know, just forget to test or not test or not want to test. And, and that's not really helpful to anyone. 
for stopping the pandemic any sooner. So what you really have to do is you have to think, okay, well, we want to make sure that testing is done. And then if the cases are found, there's support to make sure that that can be managed. And, uh, you know, I don't think penalizing an institution for for having cases is really, you know, a good solution. Obviously, you want the, the cases to stop spreading. So you really want to have you know, support in place. But there could be other solutions for this because having schools closed is a big problem and it's not a long-term solution. This question has to deal with variants. We know that vaccines are going through a generational shift to be able to address them. Do you think that we're going to have the same thing with diagnostic tests so that we have generations of tests that are essentially are designed to pick up certain types of variants? I actually think this has been managed a little bit differently in the sense that whenever we we notice that there's a new variant, we just want to make sure that our tests are still working to identify it so that we can see if it's something that we can flag. And so that's why genetic sequencing is so important because you not only want to have, for instance, people getting rapid tests to see if they're sick, you also want to do some genomic surveillance where you're actually doing molecular sequencing to figure out if you have a variant, what kind it is, if there are new variants that are created. So that's a really important part of the public health response as well. And another important reason why you still want to do some molecular testing and some sequencing so that you can better have a grasp on what's going on. So I think to your point, there are some tests that can distinguish between variants because, for instance, with PCR, they basically do the photocopying three different places in the viral genome. And then if you have only two of those out of three work, for instance, then that, that might mean you have, you're more likely to have a certain variant, for instance. So you, you, you can get some of that information even from existing tests. Um, and I think, you know, there, there could very well be some diagnostic tests that are more specific for certain variants. Absolutely. And finally, we want to get into equity. How in your vision of diagnostic testing for all, does equity play into this so that we make sure people have access to not only a diagnostic test, but the right diagnostic test for them? Absolutely. I think equity is at the center of all of these efforts to try to expand access to testing, because as we've known from the pandemic, it has disproportionately affected Um, people from underrepresented groups, people of color, um, people who are poor uh, from lower socioeconomic status. Um, And it's, it's, um, these are the people who are having the jobs that are on the front lines at supermarkets, at convenience stores, and, and really bus drivers, people who are on the front lines of the pandemic, who, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there were efforts to try to compensate them with hazard pay and other things. And a lot of those protections or recognition about their their efforts have, have sort of uh, faded and, and they still continue to have a disproportionate share of the risk and the consequences of the pandemic. So it's it's incredibly important to think about improving access to diagnostic testing, especially free or very inexpensive diagnostic testing, so that it can be accessible to everyone, regardless of where they live, regardless of how much money they make, regardless of ability to pay. And that's why it's so important for governments to step up and really recognize this as a need that needs to be filled by the government, because it's much more difficult for people to be able to do the right things if they don't have access to the right tools. So it's um, it's it's definitely been a challenge, but it's it's something that really needs to be addressed. None of us want the pandemic to last any longer than it has to. And if we don't start improving access, equitable access to diagnostic testing, really educating people on how to use the tests, 
making sure that we remove barriers to using the tests, making sure that we provide incentives for people to test and report their tests accurately, making sure that we have support to isolate, that we are are really um, taking care of each other. That's really what's going to turn this thing around. What will it take to get governments in Canada to move forward on this issue? Or is it really something we need private companies to champion to put pressure on government officials to make this happen? We need all of these approaches, continued public pressure on the government, as well as private investment, to ensure that widespread rapid testing gets rolled out as soon as possible and that lockdowns can be avoided. The private sector is led in Canada by the Creative Destruction Lab Rapid Screening Consortium, and they've been making a lot of progress to make rapid testing in businesses a reality. Places like Nova Scotia have led really impressive community-based testing efforts for months that could be replicated even more widely. However, despite countries like the United Kingdom, Germany, and the United States approving tests for home use, Canada has not yet approved any rapid tests for home use. The public needs to continue to demand action on rapid testing from lawmakers. Please visit Rapid Test and Trace Canada or rapidtests.org to get involved with advocacy efforts to improve access to rapid testing. And there you have it. I want to thank everyone who asked a question, and I hope you have gained some further insight into the need for diagnostic testing for all in order to get past this pandemic. If you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at JATetro or sending me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. And if you want to leave me a voice message, just head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, turn on your microphone, and let me know what's on your mind. Next week, we're going to talk about a certain type of COVID-19 test that has been making the news because it has absolutely no need for you to provide a sample. It's wastewater. Yep, what goes into your toilet may end up dictating how your community deals with a pandemic. You definitely don't want to miss this one. That's why it's always best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're proudly part of the Curious Cast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Sherry Lynn Ramirez and her studies. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.